Amen. You can be seated. Good morning. Oh, yeah. My name is Gary Anderson. I serve as the pastor here at Midtown Fellowship, Granny White. Uh, we are so glad that you are here. I am so glad that you are here. Um, normally, this is the service that is packed out for us, and we have overflow seating oftentimes at the 1030. This morning at the 830, it, like, we were every seat taken, every seat in overflow filled. And I have been the lead pastor here officially for two months, and I was like, this is it. Look at this church just exploding under my leadership. <laughs> and then I was talking to Chad during communion, and he's like, oh, it's daylight savings. This happens every year. And I was like, oh, there it is. So um, it's just a normal Sunday. Welcome. We're glad that you are here. Before we get into the text, uh, I want to make two uh, relatively brief announcements. The first is this. Next weekend is our men's retreat here for Granny White. Uh, I want to personally invite you, if you are a man in this room, to come on that retreat. I know a bunch of you are sitting here right now and you're like, you know, uh, sleeping on a bed made for a 12-year-old in a glorified tent with 14 other dudes for two nights is not my idea of like a relaxing, fun weekend. Uh, you need to be there. One of the, uh, and Elisa said it as, to start off the service, we want men in this church to come out of hiding. There are a lot of you who are not known, and this is just a place where you come worship on Sundays and then you disappear, and we want to know you and we want to walk with you, and there is no better way to get ingrained into this community and get to know other men than to spend 48 hours sleeping in tents out in the woods with them. Uh, so if you are here and you're like, I'm not sure that thing is for me, I'm telling you it is for you. And if you're like, um, I just am waiting for someone to invite me, here is your personal invitation from the pastor himself. We would love for you to come on our men's retreat next weekend. Um, we would love to have you there. Okay, second thing I wanna mention this morning. Uh, some of you know that about six weeks ago, we launched the sixth uh, Midtown Fellowship congregation. That was very half-hearted. Uh, that congregation uh, is in the Napier community in South Nashville, and that is a church uh, unlike any that Midtown has planted up to this point. Uh, the Napier community is a community um, deeply impoverished. 97% uh, of the Napier community lives below the poverty line, uh, and it is extremely unchurched. About 5% of the people who live in Napier actually go to a church. Uh, the last church that was planted in Napier was 25 years ago. And so this is a huge missional effort for uh, Midtown Fellowship at large. But here's one of the great challenges for Napier. They are planting a church. They started their services about six weeks ago. Uh, and they, they are doing ministry seven days a week. It is not just a Sunday service. They have a facility there where they are doing outreach. They are doing food provision. They are doing counseling. They are doing an amazing work. Uh, in Napier, they are planting a church in a community that cannot financially sustain a church. And so that is not something like out there that is different from us. That is part of Midtown Fellowship. And so between now and the end of the year, this is not just happening at Granny White, it's happening at all of our congregations. We are coming to everyone who calls Midtown Fellowship their home and asking if you might consider, if God might be leading you to support the ministry at Napier financially. So uh, we believe... Of the six congregations here, I love them all. I don't think there's one, no, I, there's not one I want to see succeed more than the one in Napier. It is an amazing ministry that they are doing, and they are, they, they are a part of us, and we need what they are doing. Um, and so, 
The last few years, as many of you will remember, we have done a stocking drive for the Napier community, and we're going to do that again this year, and you'll get details on that in the coming weeks. But we, if you uh, call Midtown Fellowship your home, if we have contact information for you, in the next few weeks, you will be getting a letter explaining what's going on there and showing, asking if you would consider uh, supporting Napier financially. Here's like my classic fundraising line. Are you ready for it? If everyone at Midtown Fellowship who calls this place their church home gave $25 a month, uh, Napier Kitchen Table would be fully funded uh, for going forward. Now, not everyone's going to be able to do that. Not everyone's going to be felt to be led by God to do that. But that is um, kind of the baseline for what we're hoping for from our congregations. And here's the deal. I just want to be really transparent with you. Uh, We are actually here at Granny White. We are behind on our budget this year. A little bit. No one's worried about it. I'm not worried about it, but I believe so much in what Napier does that before we ask you to help close our budget here at Granny White, we are asking, would you consider if God might be leading you to financially support and otherwise, like we want more than just financial support, but consider financially supporting above and beyond what you give at Midtown Fellowship Granny White to the ministry that we are doing in Napier because they need us to make that run and we need them for about a hundred more reasons than they need us. So good. You'll get more information on that. We'll get more information on the stocking drive as well coming out here in a few weeks. Now let's preach, or I'll preach, you all. It's a conversation, so we're all part of that. We're all part of that process. Uh, We're in Revelation 22 this morning, one through five. Revelation 22, one through five. I'll give you a minute to get there. Uh, We have spent the last several weeks in the book of Revelation in this series we're preaching um, in the wilderness, (laughs) both literally and figuratively, the wilderness of Revelation. Uh, But praise God, he always delivers his people out of the wilderness. And we are coming out of the wilderness today. We've got three Sundays left in our series in Revelation today, next week, and then two weeks from now. Uh, And this is where, I mean, the whole book is good, right? But this is where it gets really good. And if you were here for the first, uh, ser- first sermon in this series where we talked about Revelation giving us a vision of the shore, this is the vision of the shore that we've been waiting for for this whole series. So Revelation 22, one through five, meet me there. This is what it says. <clears throat> then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. Take note of this phrase. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, We have four children. I know I've been running a lot with this like, last few weeks, but just hang with me for at least one more week. Uh, This fall, our youngest is seven, and this fall is the first time in 14 years that we've been parents that all four of our kids have been in a sport at the same time. So it's been a really like kind of calm and relaxing (laughs) fall, particularly evenings and weekends have been very chill. Um, But there is something I've noticed this this fall as all of our kids are doing sports that I had seen a little bit before, but it has, like, it really stuck out to me uh, as we were watching our kids play sports this fall. And it is this, from the littlest to the the biggest, uh, 
when they are playing sports or whatever, soccer, volleyball, running cross country, it is remarkable how frequently the kids on their team look to the crowd or look to the sidelines or look to the stands. Uh, And it is like um, way more than I have noticed before during their games, uh, the kids uh, on my, my children's sports teams, uh, they, are, they are searching the faces in the crowd looking for who? Their, their parents, yeah, whoever brought them there. And, and I've, I started thinking, like, why are they doing that? It's like, and again, it's like when they score a point, they're looking to the crowd. When they mess up, they're looking to the crowd. When they score a goal, they're looking to the crowd. When they let a goal in, they're looking to the crowd. When they hurt somebody else, they're looking to the crowd. When they get hurt themselves, they're looking to the crowd. Why are they doing that? Because there is, there is a face in the crowd, or there might be a couple of faces in the crowd that they need to see something from while they are performing. They need to see the face of their parents more than they need to see the face of their coaches telling them that they are good, that they are accepted, that, that they are proud, that they are loved. And here's what's really interesting. You would think that that would be more prevalent in the little, littler kids. And what I have found is it actually, it, it's way more frequent with our older kids. I'm not talking just about my kids. I'm talking about everybody on their team. And, and here's what's really interesting about that. They are going to do that for the rest of their lives. Long after mom and dad aren't coming to sporting events anymore, long after mom and dad aren't around all the time, long after mom and dad have have departed from this world, they are still, we are still scanning the faces in the crowd constantly, looking for a face that will give us what we need to see. We are longing to see a face that tells us we are good enough, we are loved, and we are wanted. And we will spend our whole lives scanning the faces in the crowd. We do it everywhere. We do it at work. That is not, that irony of that is not lost on me right now as I scan the faces in the crowd, <laughs> looking for a face that's telling me I'm good enough and you're doing great. And um, uh, we do it with our coworkers. We do it with our bosses and managers. We do it with the people that work for us. We do it with our coaches. We do it with our teammates. We do it with our friends. We will do it with our parents, whether we have a good relationship with our parents or a bad relationship with our parents. We are still longing to see something on their face that we need to see. Um, In this day and age, we do it online. We do it on Facebook and we do it on Instagram. We are constantly scanning the faces in the crowd, looking to see a face that will tell us what we need to hear, that will tell us just with a look what we are longing to hear. And I can say that so confidently this morning because I am a grown man. I am 41 years old. I know that's shocking to many of you. Such a, youth, such a youthful countenance up here. And I am still doing it. I, at the risk, I mean, this might, be, this might be bearing too much of my soul for 10.50 on a Sunday morning, what feels like 11.50 on a Sunday morning. Um, but if I'm just being really honest with you, I, I am not sure I know who I am if I am not trying to get you to like me. I am not sure I know who I am if I am not trying to figure out what your expectations are of me and how I can either meet or exceed them. Because I'm, I'm constantly scanning the faces in the crowd, looking for a face that is going to tell me I'm good enough and I'm loved as I am and I'm wanted. And here's the deal. 
We might get glimpses of that every once in a while, but we are never going to see the face that we are looking for, though we spend our whole lives scanning the crowd. But I've come along this morning to bring some encouragement. I've come along to bring some good news because for those of us who are in Christ, that is not always the way it is going to be. There's a lot going on in Revelation 22, one through five, and I wish that we had time to unpack all of it. We don't, but here's where I wanna camp out this morning. I just, I want us to sit in verse four for the duration of our time together this morning. For those who are in Christ, one day we will see God's face. And that feels like kind of this nebulous, esoteric, like what does that really mean? And I'm just trying to make it as as concrete as possible. We will see in that face finally everything we have been longing and desiring to see for the first time and and fully for eternity. One day, we will see God's face. If I could give this sermon a title, and actually I can because it's my sermon. I, I wrote it. And so uh, what, I, what I'm calling this sermon today is the end is like the beginning. The end is like the beginning because we are coming to the end of all things. And what we're going to see as we start to unpack Revelation 22, 1 through 5, is that it actually sounds a lot like the beginning. So we don't have time to do the Revelation outline this morning. I know you all have it down and know it by heart anyway. But for those of you who are like, why did we jump ahead to Revelation 22? Here's why. We will come back to Revelation 21 next week. That is the beginning Uh, That is where John sees a vision of the new heavens and the new earth, the heavenly city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven and merging with the new earth. Uh, It's beautiful and it's awesome. And we're going to hit that next week. We've jumped ahead to 22, 1 through 5, because 22, 1 through 5 give us the summary statement, the summary, um, I don't need to, the summary of what the new creation is going to look like. And do not miss, as we come to Revelation 22, one through five, the first few verses talking about a river flowing from the throne of God and the tree of life, that should set off some alarm bells or some memory bells for those of us who know the trajectory of scripture because that sounds a lot like the beginning where there was a river in the Garden of Eden and there was a tree of life in the Garden of Eden and God's presence was in the Garden of Eden and God's presence is in the New Jerusalem. And so what we see as we come to Revelation 22 is that the city and the garden have merged together. The city, which through scripture has kind of represented man opposed to God. Cain was banished and he went to a city, the city of Babylon, trying to make a name for themselves in Genesis. The city of Babylon all through Revelation. Now the city has been redeemed and it has been turned into the garden, which reminds us of the Garden of Eden, which tells us that the end is a lot like the beginning. And what we find when we come to the end God's there and Jesus is there and there's a river and there's the tree of life and it's, a, it's like the garden again. And then we come to verse four and it says, and those who are in Christ, they will see God's face. And for us to fully understand what that means, we just need to take a little bit of a biblical theological detour before we get into the details of what I want us to learn about that. We need to understand what that means to see God's face as it relates to the rest of scripture. So if we go all the way back to the beginning, That is a 1,000 pages in my Bible. God only knows how many years it is from the time of the New Jerusalem all the way back to Adam and Eve. But if we go all the way back to the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He created man, Adam. He formed him from the dust of the earth. And do you remember how Genesis tells us that God gave Adam life? He breathed into his nostrils. I don't know if you've ever blown into someone else's nostrils. Like I I actually would like to hear about that story if you have. 
But what theologians and scholars tell us is that if God gave Adam life by breathing into his nostrils, when Adam opened his eyes for the first time, what is it that he was looking at? The face of God. And then we know in Genesis 1 and 2 that after God finished creation and he said it was good and he saw man and woman and he said that was very good, he put them in the Garden of Eden. And what did God do with them in the Garden of Eden? That was, you don't, that, that was too vague of a question. God was with them. God's presence was in Eden. There's all kinds of parallels. Eden was a temple. Like, we don't, have time to, we don't have time to unpack all of that. Entrance was on the east, just like the temple on the east. God's presence was in the temple. God's presence was in Eden. When he banished Adam and Eve, he put cherubim to guard the way. In the Holy of Holies, there were cherubim over the ark. It was the place of God's presence. And as the old hymn goes, they walked with him and they talked with him. They knew God as a man knows his friend. That was about Moses later. But Adam and Eve knew God. They were with God. They were in relationship with God. They saw God. They saw God's face. And then sin entered in for reasons we may never understand. And sin broke that relationship with God. And if you remember what happened after sin entered in, God banished Adam and Eve from the garden. But what was that really doing? He he was banishing them from the garden, but the garden was God's presence. And so what was he banishing them from? From his presence. They no longer could be with God. They no longer could look at his face. That was what was implied when they were banished from the garden. And what was implicit in Genesis 3 becomes explicit in Exodus 33. If you know the trajectory of the story of Exodus, Moses has led the Israelites out of slavery. They're wandering in the desert. Moses has this unique special relationship where he talks to God and God talks to him and tells him how to lead the Israelites. And at one point in Exodus 33, one of my favorite passages, I know they're all my favorite, but Moses comes to God and he says, show me your glory. What's he saying? He's saying, I want to see you. And do you remember how God responds? He says, this is what I'm going to do for you, Moses. He says, I will put you in the cleft of the rock and I will have my glory pass by you. And as my glory passes by you, I will cover you with my hand. And when I get past, you will be able to look upon my back. And then he says, because no man can look at my face and what? And live. He says, if you saw my face, you would die. So I will just let you see my back. So Adam and Eve are banished from the garden. They, they cannot look at God's face any longer. Moses, who had the, maybe the most unique relationship with God of anyone who walked the earth, says, show me your glory. And God says, you can't look at my face. And then we come to Revelation 22, and we have made it through all of the wilderness, all of the craziness of Revelation, the bowls and the trumpets and the seals and the destruction of Babylon. And we come to the new city, the, the holy Jerusalem, and what are we told in Revelation 22, 4? Those who are in Christ, those who have been marked out by God as his, they will be in the new city of God and he will be there and there won't be a temple because God is their temple and uh, waters of life flowing and trees of life and fruit. And oh, by the way, they will see his face. And it might be the most important thing that all of Revelation teaches us. So the rest of the time we have together, I want to I unpack it by trying to answer two questions. Only a two-point sermon this morning. Doesn't mean it's going to be any shorter. Uh, what does it mean that we will see God's face? What does it mean that we will see God's face? And the first thing it means is that we will be satisfied. To see God's face is to be satisfied. 
Uh, King David, we gotta go, uh, just to understand this a little bit, we gotta backtrack a little bit again to the Old Testament. King David, greatest king in Israel's history. Uh, when he reigned as king of Israel, most scholars and historians would say Israel was the most powerful nation, uh, at least in the, in the ancient Near East. Uh, it was the wealthiest. David was the, the king par excellence. He, um, he led the nation. He, God gave him the lives of his enemies. He overtook uh, all of their enemies. He was successful in battle. He was successful in politics. He was successful in leadership. He would have been one of the wealthiest men on earth. He had everything that you could possibly want, at least if you lived a thousand years before Christ. He didn't have a Nintendo or you know, a Tesla or any of those kind of things. But power, wealth, women, resources, he had it all. And what we know from the story of David's life is that he was a lot like Mick Jagger. He couldn't get no. Da-na-na, satisfaction. Da-na-na. That is the extent of singing you will ever hear from me in church. One of the great fears of my life is that my microphone gets turned on by accident during worship and it's my voice that comes up through these speakers. Uh, I, I pray against it every Sunday morning before I come, we come in here. So... Uh, and we don't know that David couldn't get satisfaction just from the story of his life. We know it because of what he wrote himself. So in Psalm 27, 4, David, King David, who uh, more than any of us in this room had had the opportunity to, to explore every avenue to find satisfaction that this life might offer. In Psalm 27, 4, David says, one thing have I asked of the Lord and that will I seek after. Oh, he says, I want one thing that I may dwell in the house of the Lord to gaze upon his beauty and to inquire in his temple. David was like, I can't find satisfaction anywhere. There's only one thing that's gonna satisfy me. And that is to look on the face and beauty of the Lord. Amen. And if it was true for David, how much more so for us? Uh, do you know you, you, most of you know this because many of you have experienced this. Do you know that uh, when you are in the presence of something you desire, you have a physiological response to that? So when I, uh, when I first started dating my wife, uh, when I was in her presence, my heart rate would go up on, like I couldn't control it. I, my heart started beating faster. Uh, my palms would get sweaty. Uh, I had a hard time eating, genuinely. I was like, I don't want to eat. I just want to gaze at her beauty. I had a hard time forming coherent sentences. And for a lot of you who are like, does that mean she's in here this morning? Because that's what it sounds like this morning. The answer, the answer is yes. Uh, I had a physiological response being in the presence of something that I desired. And, and some of you may have experienced that, it, that as well. Uh, I found myself uh, one time in, the, in, a, in a room, in a crowd, with one of my favorite musicians, unexpectedly. Never talked to this person, never interacted with this person, never, like, no, nothing. But, but, like, I was a little bit shaky because of it. And, and you all know, if, if someone, if, if Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey walked up in here right now, there'd be some heart rates that would go up. Because when we are in the presence of something we desire, we have a physiological response. And so here's the deal. Think back with me to that story about Moses from Exodus 33. Why couldn't he see God's face? 
most of us would say, and, and frankly, many theologians and scholars would say, it's because God is holy and Moses is sinful and sin cannot coexist in the presence of holiness. And so were he to look at God's holy face, uh, he would not be able to live. And that's good theology and that's true and that's right. But you know what else might be possible? It might be possible that Moses wasn't able to look at God's face and live because for Moses to see God's face would have been the summation and the consummation of every and deepest longing and desire of Moses' heart. And to see that object of his desire would have caused such an overwhelming physiological response in his frail and fragile human body that he wouldn't live. One day, we will know satisfaction when we look into the face of God because God, it may not, you may not feel like this on a day-to-day basis, God is the embodiment of every longing and desire of your heart. We are satisfaction junkies. We are desperate to be satisfied and we look for it in every place you can imagine. But just like drugs or alcohol, that when we get a little bit and we feel a little bit satisfied, the next time it's gonna take a little bit more of that hit to help us feel satisfied. And so uh, we are constantly looking to be satisfied and always feeling left wanting, left empty. Name, name whatever it is that you're running to for satisfaction, whether it's money, um, John Rockefeller, he was the Elon Musk of his day, probably the richest man in the world. Reporter famously asked John Rockefeller one time, how much is enough, Rockefeller? And you know what he said? Just a little bit more. And that is every one of our hearts, whether it's money or success or experiences or whatever it is that we are running to for satisfaction, sleep, rest, vacations, it never quite gets us to where we want to be. Am, am I just, am I wrong or are we tracking with me here? And one day, the promise of Revelation 22.4 is that for those who are in Christ, you will behold the face of the one that you were made to look at. We were made to look at God's face and we are not able to do it in the sinful state we are in right now. But one day when we see him, we will be like him. Our bodies will be changed and we will behold the face of God and we will know what it means to be satisfied. Which for most of us, we can't even comprehend what it would mean to be satisfied. To, not, to, to have no more wants. I, I don't, I, I, I can't fathom what that would be like. But that is what it will mean to see God's face. So, We will see God's face, and it will mean that we will be satisfied. And here's the second thing that it will mean to see God's face. It will mean rest. We will know rest when we look into God's face. So lest you think I'm going to preach this whole sermon without actually going to the text, uh, jump back with me to, uh, well, let's just do verses four and five. So it says, they will see his face. Then it says, his name will be on their foreheads. That's not literal. That just means that we will be able, for those who are in Christ, it will be obvious that they are God's when we are in his presence. And then then look at verse five. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. Now, again, we just need a little biblical theological context to understand what this verse is telling us. So in the beginning, 
before God created the heavens and the earth. You remember what, uh, what the state of things was? Darkness. And what were the first words that God spoke as he spoke creation into being? Let there be light. And through all of scripture, one of the major themes is the, the contrast or the battle between light and darkness. When Jesus comes, John, the gospel writer, in his, the first chapter in his prologue says, when Jesus came, the light has entered into the darkness and the darkness cannot overcome it. Because all throughout scripture, darkness represents uh, evil and sin and the forces who are opposed to God and light represents who God is and the change that he brings. And we don't have to just... Uh, We don't have to just listen to how the biblical writers use darkness and light. We can just look to our own experience. Do we like darkness? No, we don't. Darkness is scary. It's why when I'm home alone, I like to sleep with a light on. Because when it's dark, there are unknowns. We can't see. Like It's literally the definition of dark. I'm like, I don't have to bear this out too much. When it's dark, you can't see what's there. You don't know what's going on. You don't know what is in the dark. But when the light comes, now you know and now you can see. And that is such an amazing picture for how we are doing life. Because for anyone who says, I am a follower of Jesus Christ, and then follows that up by saying, and I have never doubted, I've never had fear, I've never been anxious, I've never worried, then I would say, then you're a liar. Because That is just the nature of what it means to follow Jesus. There is darkness that is always pressing in this side of eternity. There is darkness that is full of unknowns. We are constantly wrestling, even those of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus Christ with, is God who he says he is? Is he really good? Because my lived experience doesn't feel like there's a good God who is uh, marking out and leading me every step of the way. Is he really real? And that's not something that we need to like be like, oh, that's a lack of faith. That's exactly what faith is. To follow Jesus is to walk in faith. That is one of the main, uh, one of the main teachings of this book. And it defines what faith is. Faith is hoping in something that we cannot be certain of. And so for those who call themselves followers of Jesus Christ, for those of us who are disciples of Jesus Christ, the whole trajectory of of our walk through life, this side of eternity, is fighting against the darkness that is constantly trying to press in, saying, is this really real? Is he really good? Did God really say? Is it really all going to work out in the end? And then one day, we are going to see his face. And what scripture says is that faith will be no more. There will be no more need for faith. We won't need to hope for something that we aren't certain is actually going to happen because we will behold the face of God and all of the doubts, fears, frustrations, anxieties, worries, cares, disappointments will be gone because the light will flood into the darkness. And what all of those things cause us to do is to be tired. It is, we are fighting constantly and it is exhausting. And one day we will behold the face of our maker and we will fully and finally rest. There is a great scene and uh, I'm, I'm running hard with movies from my childhood, actually Robin Williams movies from my childhood. Uh, there's a great scene in a movie from my childhood called Hook, which is a story about Peter Pan after he left Never Never Land and grew up. And then he goes back to Never Never Land and it was Peter Pan. I, you know, I won't grow up. 
I don't want to grow up. And he leaves and he grows up and he becomes a man and he's got glasses and he's a little bit overweight and he's got gray hair and he comes back to Never Never Land and all the lost boys are like, I'm not, you're not, you're not Peter Pan. And there's this amazing scene where he's sitting down in the dirt and they're all standing around him. And one of the little lost boys walks over to him and he puts his, he puts his hands up on his face and he starts manipulating his face and he's, he's pushing up his cheekbones and he's, he's pushing away the wrinkles. And then all of a sudden a smile comes over that little kid's face and he goes, it is you, Peter. He goes, there you are. And though the text doesn't say this, I don't think it's too much of a stretch to say that one day you will hold God's face in your hands and you will say, it is you, God. There you are. And all of the years of fighting, all of the years of pushing back against the darkness, all of the years where it felt like the darkness was going to win, all of the years of questioning and wondering, is this even real, will be gone. And you and I will fully and finally be able to rest. I spent, uh, I used to, I spent, I used to work, I still work, uh, just in a different way. I used to work in the business world and I spent a number of years uh, on the sales side of an organization and we would have, every year in December, we would have our year-end sales meetings. And uh, those sales meetings are where all of the salespeople from my company, which was like maybe 100 or 110 people, would come in from all over the country for three days of meetings uh, at the end of the year. And the four Regional sales managers were there. One of them was my boss. The national sales manager was there. The CEO, they brought in speakers, all this stuff. And it was, you know, it was billed as like a camaraderie, you know, like rah, rah, let's, let's rally the troops and go get them for another year. Um, and that was a, a little bit, but mostly what it was, and I know some of you will have experienced this, it was a lot of posturing. Uh, it was a lot of kind of who's the best and who's better than them and uh, who's done the best job and who's not doing great. And, and those meetings were not just kind of like, let's share best practices. They were also the meetings um, where people got demoted. So it's like, you know, halfway through day two, you heard about so-and-so is getting pulled off the road and putting back on the inside. Um, during the fi- it was a financial company. So during the crisis in 2008, 2009, it's when we had reductions in force. And so like you came to those... I shouldn't use you, I statements. I came to those meetings and they were not like, this is fun to be with all my buddies and you know, kind of learn about. They were stressful. Like you're walking on pins and needles for three straight days of like all this kind of jockeying for position, all the politicking. What's the hammer that's gonna drop this year? What's, what changes are they making? What territory is getting realigned? All that stuff. And so when you made it through those meetings unscathed, when I got home, those first couple nights that I got back, I would sleep for like, 14 hours. Maybe not because I had kids, but I would have liked to have slept for 14 hours because it was like I could let my guard down and I could finally rest in a way that I couldn't. And that is what it is going to feel like for us. We are just grinding. We are grinding through this life. I don't care how many good things God has given you, how many hard things God has given you. Uh, We are fighting against the darkness from the time we are born to the time that God calls us home. And that fight is exhausting but it will not last forever. One day, we will see God's face. And I don't, we can't comprehend what that will mean. But when we see God's face, we will rest. If my wife had a dollar for every time I have told her I just want some rest, she would be a very rich woman. And one day, I'm going to get it. And one day, you are too. So, um, 
I struggled a little bit this week with like, so what's the like, what's the so what? Okay, so we'll see God's face and we will know satisfaction and we will know rest, but what should you go home this afternoon and do? Should give more money to Midtown. I'm just kidding. That is not it at all. That is a total joke. A little bit off color. I apologize. Here's the so what. What that means is that for those who are in Christ, we can move through this life and we don't have to despair. That is what marks us out as different from those who don't know Jesus. We can go through this life and never fully know satisfaction. We can go through this life and never fully know what it feels like to to fully and finally rest. And we can, one, know that actually that's to be expected. We're not supposed to find satisfaction. We're not supposed to find rest here. This is like, this is one of the most overused preacher quotes. It's C.S. Lewis, you're welcome. I just, I'm gonna paraphrase it and butcher it, but C.S. Lewis, it's used a lot because it's so good. C.S. Lewis said one time, if we find in ourselves a longing that nothing in this world can satisfy, maybe that means we were made for a different world. We can go through this life not getting the satisfaction we are longing for. We can go through this life not getting the rest we are longing for. We can go through this life constantly scanning the faces in the crowd and never seeing the face that fully and finally tells us we are good enough and we are loved as we are and we are wanted and we do not have to despair because we know one day that is coming. If we do not have that hope, if we do not have that vision of the shore and this life does not give us good things, if this life does not give us the satisfaction we are longing for or the rest that we are longing for, and we do not have the hope of Jesus, we are despairing. But if we believe that what this book says is true, if we believe that what Revelation says is true is actually gonna happen, and that one day we will look at the face of God then whatever this life brings us, we can be sad, disappointed, frustrated, mad, angry, question, all of those things. But we do not have to despair because we have a vision of the shore. I wanna go home on this. Uh, I think for many of us, and myself included, when we think about what does it mean to see God's face, like that, that feels, again, so nebulous and so out there, Uh, It's hard to get excited about that, but it's also hard for me to get excited about it because I have now spent 41 years looking at faces, longing to see a face that I have yet to actually see. And and so it's like, hey, uh, one day you'll see God's face and that's going to be different. It's like, well, if you know like who I am and kind of the failures of my life, the, the sin that I know is just like constantly there, the so many times that I have just face-planted and done what is wrong when I knew what the right thing to do is, it's hard not to expect that when I see God's face, like I already know what that face is gonna be like looking back at me. I'm not mad, just disappointed with you. And I just wanna draw us, like as we close this up, I wanna take us to one um, really beautiful verse in the book of Luke. Uh, Luke has given us the the passion narrative. He's telling us about the night that Jesus was arrested. And Matthew and Mark tell us the exact same thing, but they don't include this one detail that Luke does. Uh, At the Last Supper, Jesus tells his disciples what's going to happen, and he tells Peter, uh, and Peter says, you know, that's not going to happen. And he tells Peter, actually, uh, you're going to deny that you even know me three times tonight. 
And Peter is like, I love Peter. He's like, he's like, I will die with you. He's like, I would never do that. And then Jesus is arrested and Peter's terrified. And Jesus is taken to the high priest's uh, like mansion and he's questioned there. And Peter follows at a distance. And if you know the story, Peter's outside there kind of waiting to see what's going on. He's warming himself by a fire. And three separate times, someone says to him, hey, weren't you with Jesus? And he's like, don't even know the guy. He's like, hey, don't you know Jesus? And he's like, nah, never seen the guy. And then, and then uh, he's, three times he denies Jesus. And then the rooster crows. And Matthew and Mark don't say this, but Luke says that as the rooster crows, Jesus is being led out, led by the Roman guards out. And, and Luke says that Peter looked at Jesus. And Jesus looked at Peter. And then Peter wept. I think most of us, myself included, when we come to that, we're like, yeah, totally understand why Peter wept. Because when he saw the face of Jesus through the crowd, what he saw was, I'm not mad, just disappointed. Didn't I, Peter, didn't I tell you this was going to happen? Peter, are you really that scared that you couldn't just admit that you know me? But if that is the face that Peter saw in Jesus, then the gospel is not true. Because that is the the furthest thing from what he saw in the face of Jesus. What Peter saw in the face of Jesus that night was that he is fully loved, that he is fully accepted, that he is wanted just as he is. What he saw in Jesus' face that night was unconditional, unexplainable love. And that is why he wept. And so if you're sitting here this morning, you're like, I'm not sure I actually want to look into the face of God because I don't think I would like the face that is looking back. I need to, I need to tell you some good news. When you see the face of God, for those who are in Christ, the only thing you will see is unconditional, unexplainable love. All you will see in the face of God is the same way he looks at his son, Jesus Christ, saying to you, you are the beloved. With you, I am well pleased. It is the face that we will spend our whole lives longing to see. And for those who are in Christ, one day we will see it and everything will be changed. We are gonna come to the communion table now. And I wanna remind us as we do that the reason God gave us the sacrament of communion was to remind us of who we are in him. Because all week long, we got all these voices, we got all these faces looking at us, telling us we're somebody that we're not. And when you come to the communion table, when you partake of the body of Christ and the blood of Christ shed on a cross for you, you are reminded, I am reminded that we are the beloved. That God looks at us the same way that he looks at his son and says, you are fully loved just as you are. You are fully accepted just as you are. I want you just as you are. So if you can sit here this morning and say, I have bowed my knee to Jesus Christ as my savior, my encouragement to you is do not walk to this table, but run. That we might be reminded of who we are in him. But scripture is also clear that this, uh, this is a family meal. This is for those who are in God's family. And so if you are here this morning and you're like, I actually have never bowed my knee to Jesus Christ, I actually would be terrified to look into the face of God this morning. Uh, My ask is that you don't come to the communion table. But there is no better moment than this moment right now 
to make the decision that actually I want to know God in that way. I cannot save myself and I need Jesus Christ to save me. And if that's you and you want to make that decision this morning, it would be the highlight of my week to talk to you about it. Uh, A few instructions before we come to this table. The way we do communion here at Midtown is we invite you all to come down front. We have these kneelers. Uh, If you're able to, we invite you to kneel down at the kneelers. If you would like someone to pray for you, just cross your arms over your chest and one of our servers would be delighted to pray for you. When you are ready to take the elements, take your time, uh, just put your hands out and you will receive the bread and the cup. Uh, We have wine and grape juice. The wine is on the outer rings of the tray in the clear cups. The grape juice is in the middle of the tray in the colored cups. I think that's right. Someone correct me if I'm wrong. Um, When you're ready, you can can start forming lines uh, down all three aisles. When you are done, just head out those doors and uh, circle back and come in the back. And I just want to encourage you with this. I know it's really tempting right now to take communion and then be done. Go get the kids and go head home for lunch, particularly because we're an hour behind. But um, there is an essential element of coming to the communion table whereby we respond to God and say thank you for what he has done for us in coming to the table. So if you can, I would just encourage you to come back in and finish out worshiping with us together. Hear these words uh, of institution Paul gave to the Corinthians as we come to the table. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this time. We thank you for the truth and the beauty of your word. God, we thank you for the promises that one day you will return, that one day you will make all things right, that one day you will allow us to see your face. And when we see your face, we will live and we will live forever. God, give us courage and strength to make it to that day. I pray now, God, as we come to this table, that you would spiritually feed us, that you would remind us of who we are, and that you would give us strength to go back out into the world and live as shining lights for you, pushing back against the darkness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.